Right, I want to, I'm actually going to just, just read a, a few verses from Hebrews, but then I'm going to preach from Leviticus, just to confuse everybody, all right? But here's a few verses from, from Hebrews chapter 10, first of all, as you can see on the screen, Hebrews 10, uh, verses 19 to 24. Therefore, brothers and sisters, uh, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Amen. So, if you just go back one screen, uh, Jack. So, at the beginning of that reading, uh, it talks about the, the entering the most holy place and, uh, and the, through, the, through a curtain. Where are we? Where is the illustration taking place there in Hebrews? Where's the most holy place he's referring to there, do you think? Sorry? The temple, yeah. So, so the writer of Hebrews is, is going back to the Old Testament temple and the very innermost part of the, the temple in the Old Testament was called the most holy place. And that was where God's sort of presence rested, as it were. And there was a huge curtain sort of shutting that off because if you went in just as you are, that was a scary thing. Uh, but the writer is telling us that Jesus has made a way for us to go through that. And it's all a picture, in other words, of how Jesus actually, because of his blood and his body on the cross, has enabled us to come to God without fear and instead with confidence, because we've been cleansed, even our consciences have been cleansed. And I want to talk a little bit about some of those pictures from the Old Testament that point us actually to what Jesus has done. And there are lots of them, but I've picked one of them from Leviticus 16. So if you've got a Bible, you can have a look at Leviticus 16 as well. Let's just pray. Father, we ask that as we look at the Bible today and some of these, uh, um, some of the settings that we're going to talk about today, some of the pictures from the Old Testament, they're, they're, a, long, they're a long distance from our culture. They're a long distance in time from us. So help us just to sort of put ourselves back all those years into, into the ancient Israelite culture so that that will help us realize that what you were teaching them through all these things so that it will help us today learn more and more about you and about Jesus and what he's done for us. So help me to preach, help us all to have open ears and hearts to receive your words to us. And we pray this in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, it's great to see you all here today, by the way. Uh, now, two of the most difficult Emotions that we deal with as human beings are guilt and shame. Uh, they come as a, as a response to a sense of having done something wrong, either because we have done or because perhaps we've been made to feel that way. Uh, feelings of guilt, often they come from within ourselves, from our own conscience, okay? And we might try to avoid guilt in life by either by denial, you know, we haven't done anything wrong, or maybe we'll try to appease the guilt that we feel in ourselves by, you know, I, I, well, maybe beating ourselves up constantly. You know, for some people, they, they're constantly beating themselves up about 
as an attempt to sort of uh, deal with that guilt. Shame, on the other hand, tends to be more social, shall we say. What I mean is that it has to do with how we feel or are made to feel in relation to, to others, to other people around us. So shame is experienced in how we face those around us and how they face us. And so we might try to avoid shame by hiding. It's interesting in the Garden of Eden story in Genesis 3, that exact response is there. They felt ashamed, it says, and they hid. Uh, a friend of mine is a psych uh, psychotherapist. And I asked him, what are some of the different ways as human beings that we cope with feelings of shame? And he said this. He said, I get, this was a text message, by the way. Uh, he said, I guess our coping strategies would vary. But a narcissistic response would be to adopt a false self that was invulnerable and grandiose. Others might retreat from engaging with life. Others will try to offload their shame onto others by blaming them and belittling them. Some manage shame through competition. If I beat you, I don't need to feel shame anymore. Now, it, those were just some of his, off the top of his head, ways that, as a psychotherapist, we deal with shame as human beings. But it struck me that every one of those is an attempt to hide behind something. Now, these emotions, guilt and shame, are very real, and they can have quite devastating effects on our lives and on our communities. They can inhibit us from experiencing that life that God intends, a life where we love him and where we love our neighbor as ourselves. So the, in the Bible, God actually does talk about these things and helps us to deal with guilt and shame, both personally and also in our relationships. In the Bible, God is a God who leads us from guilt into his forgiveness. And he leads us from shame into reconciliation, into acceptance, and into new beginnings. So God does not pretend that wrongdoing or sin isn't real. We all know it is. But neither does God kind of want us to just get trapped in a cycle of guilt and shame that leads, I think, to a kind of death in us. God saves us from sin. God cleanses us from our guilt. He heals us and restores us out of our shame. Now, unfortunately, there have been times in history when the church seems to have forgotten this and has actually piled up guilt and shame on people in bucket loads, as if that were the church's job. And perhaps even, maybe there have been times where church, the church has used that as a tool of power, unfortunately. And that's really sad because, you know, John 3 says that God sent his son Jesus into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now, in the Old Testament, before Jesus came and before printed books, before the study of human psychology, God would sometimes talk about these things through the drama of festivals. And these were familiar events in the ancient world, very special occasions, full of life and drama and spirit, and the Israelite community in the Old Testament would come together at these times each year to learn about how things are, to learn how to see life, and to learn from God, therefore, how to live. So they had these huge festivals, and the various festivals each year spoke of different things, some wonderful things like creation and harvest, uh, home and community, uh, rescue and salvation, and there was themes of light and life and love and truth within these festivals. But there was one particular day each year called the Day of Atonement. And that day, that festival, 
answered some of the more difficult questions about what happens when things go awry. You know, what, what do we do with our, mis our mistakes? What do we do with our regrets, our wrongdoing, our sin? What do we do with guilt and the pain that that can cause in us? Or with the disharmony that arises between us as people? You know, between each other or between us and God? When, when relationships are strained and damaged and broken even, how do we respond and how does God respond in, a, in such a way that actually that can heal us rather than just tear us apart and destroy us? And the Day of Atonement talked about that. And God's intention was that on that day each year, the ancient community would leave that day like a new page had begun for them all. God said that in Leviticus 16, verse 30. On this day, he said, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you, and you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So that was like a day every year on which the reset button was pressed for everybody. The slate was wiped clean. A new chapter begins. And those words, atone and cleanse, were the words that God used to describe it. Now, atone in Hebrew... Kafar literally means to cover something. So atone means it's covered. A fresh canvas has been laid over it. Cleanse, of course, means to be washed clean or, or to be made pure. So that's about us being, you know, all wiped clean. It's a fresh start. So have you ever wished, you know, you could have you ever wished that you could go back and erase, wash away something that you did or something that you said? Have you ever wished that something that's happened between you and someone else, perhaps, would just disappear from your history? You know, just go and disappear. You don't want to have to think about it anymore. We've all got those things, haven't we, in our lives? And God talked about that on the Day of Atonement every year in the Old Testament. And ultimately, as we'll see, all of it points forward to Jesus and what he has done for the world. But before Jesus came... God decided that on this day each year, he was going to talk about this through the medium of goats. Okay? Goats. Two goats were taken on the Day of Atonement, and lots of other things happened as well, but I just want to talk about these two goats. And these goats were used to illustrate atonement and cleansing. Now, it sounds really weird. Why goats? Well, actually, I think because the... The Israelites already had a very famous story from their past about what happens when things go wrong between us, when people do wrong to each other, and how that can either destroy us or it can be healed. And that famous story from their past actually involved goats. Uh, it's actually the story we thought about last Sunday, the story of Jacob and Esau, twin brothers who fell out quite majorly. Uh, Jacob wronged his brother Esau by stealing his blessing, and he did that by tricking their father, who was elderly. Uh, and Esau wanted to kill Jacob in retaliation, so Jacob had to flee for his life. And only years and years later were the brothers reconciled, and the rift was healed, and the sin was forgiven. The guilt and the shame and hostility between them was replaced with forgiveness and an embrace and brotherly love. What's that got to do with goats? Well, in Hebrew, Esau's name means the same as the word goat. Uh, Esau's name means hairy, because we told he was, we're told he was hairy. Uh, and so does the Hebrew word for goat. That also means hairy, because they're hairy as well. Um, 
Esau's family ended up living in the land of Seir. And that comes from the same word as goat as well. So they lived in the land of hairy or the land of goat. Uh, and in Genesis 22, so at the, that Genesis 22 is where everything goes wrong. Uh, the moment that in the in the Jacob and Esau story, where the you know he's Jacob's about to steal Esau's blessing, the word hairy or goat is there when Jacob comments that his brother is hairy and that he's going to have to use that to trick their father into thinking he's Esau. But even more significant, at that pivotal moment in their story, when Jacob's about to do the deed, it says he took two young or two male goats and he made a stew from them to give his father. And almost, it's an almost identical phrase later on in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, where God says, now I want you to take two young or male goats, depending on how you translate it, because God said he was going to now talk to them about atonement and forgiveness. So you've got to put, your, put yourself back in the ancient world. One of their most famous stories about their forefather, Jacob, and Jacob took two goats from the flock, and everything went wrong, and there was separation and hostility, but eventually there was forgiveness and reconciliation. And God says, in the same kind of phrase, take two goats. And the people think, what, you mean like Jacob and Esau? That thing. And God's basically saying to them, yes, we need to go there. We need to go there and talk about that today, because there are some Jacob and Esau type things going on among you now. There always are in the world. There's brotherly disharmony, there's wrongdoing, there's sin. And God was kind of saying to them, look, this could tear you apart if you're not careful. And God was saying, I want to talk to you about how we get through it into a better place. So I want you to take two young goats, because I want to show you something important. Now, as I say, the New Testament reveals that all of this points to Jesus ultimately and how he rescues us from sin and guilt and shame. So, Leviticus 16, two goats were taken from among the community. The first goat, we're told, was sacrificed and its blood was sprinkled in the temple, in the very place in the temple where God symbolically sat. And the blood, which symbolizes life in the Bible, the blood of this first goat was said to make atonement, to literally to cover, make a covering for the whole place where God was. So that's what Leviticus 16 says. The blood of this goat covers over all the uncleanness of the people's sins before God. Now, think about what that was picturing. What does God see when he looks at you? That lesson in the temple was telling us, God was telling us, that he, when he looks at you, he sees another life sacrificially given that covers over all your imperfections. The goat, the first goat, was telling them that someone else, not them, not the sinners, but another, would somehow be given, and the life of this other would somehow have the power, God was saying, to cover over all your wrongdoing. And the priest in the temple, we're told, would sprinkle this lifeblood of another everywhere in God's presence. And I think it's as if God was saying, look, the life of, of another will be the thing that I see everywhere, all over, all over the place. You know, th this was happening in the place in the temple where God was, symbolically. And God was saying, everywhere I look, it's, that's what I'm going to see now. Another life 
given for you that covers over any of your wrongdoing. And of course, that's exactly how the New Testament would later describe what Jesus achieved for us. John, in his first epistle, speaks of Christ's blood cleansing us from all sin and of Jesus being the atonement, he uses that word, the covering for the sins of the whole world. Jesus' perfect life covers over our imperfections. So one, one thing the cross is about, where Jesus died, is the giving of his perfect life to be your covering before God. So what does God see when you stand in front of him? God doesn't just see you. He always sees Jesus in you. All right? All of your blemishes, all of your barriers are covered by Jesus because God sees everything Jesus did for you. Hebrews 10, we read, actually uses that image straight from the temple when it describes us coming to God, to God's throne in faith, through the blood of Jesus, having our hearts sprinkled so that our conscience, it says, are cleansed. Galatians 3 gives a similar picture when it says all who are baptized into Christ are clothed with Christ. It's like he's a garment covering you. So all those familiar Old Testament pictures that seem a bit weird to us, let's be honest, what they're actually describing is what Jesus now has actually done for us. In a sense, you, you are everything that Jesus has done for you. That's how God sees it. You are everything that Jesus has done for you. And that's what God sees covering you. So if you ever feel in life like you cannot be good enough or that God would never want you because of all this stuff, all this baggage, if your sense of guilt that you feel is one that you really can't get rid of, look at what God is saying to you. Just like on that day of atonement, Jesus steps in, you know, like, like when this goat was brought in, only now it's the real thing. Jesus, the Son of God, steps in and he says, it's okay I've given my life as if it was yours. And that covers everything you think would come in the way of us, he says. And that's what God promised and provided for you. He pictured it in the past. He's fulfilled it in the flesh and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son. So, so imagine that. That's what, as the ancient Israelites came on that day, probably carrying all sorts of regrets. They'd stuffed up, like we all do, the past year. And they heard God say this, atonement has been made for you today to cleanse you. It's okay, in other words. From, from all your sins, God said, you're clean. And that's exactly what God says to you when he talks to you about Jesus. Okay, so that was the first goat. How are we doing? Oh, we'll be all right. It's not much longer. Uh, that was the first goat. Something different happened with the second goat. Uh, Leviticus 16. The high priest, it says, shall bring forward the live goat. And he is to, the priest will lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the Israelites, all their transgressions, all their sins, putting them on the goat's head. And then he shall send the goat away into the wilderness by the hand of someone appointed. And the goat will carry on itself all their sins. The goat will carry them to a remote place and the person will then release it sending it away into the wilderness. Now this second goat depicted, the picture was all our wrongdoing being carried away and disappearing into oblivion. And it's particularly helpful, I think, for feelings of shame, because shame makes us feel exiled. 
from those around us. We, it, shame is about us feeling unwelcome, it, among others. It, it's, a, it's a fear of being driven out. And this second goat experienced that. You know, it was driven out. It was kind of exiled. It was sent away. But before it was sent away, something very important happened. The people's sin was symbolically transferred onto the goat. And what that meant was, the people themselves did not get sent away. Their sin did. All right? God sends the sin away. He exiles that so that it's gone and the people can wake up the next day and they're still home and they're free from it, from what they were carrying and afraid was going to exile them. Leviticus says the high priest, he laid his hands on the goat and confessed the people's sins. Uh, do you know the Hebrew word for confess literally means throw something. In fact, the same word is sometimes used of shooting an arrow. I find that so helpful. You know, think of all those things that we carry that cause, us, cause problems between us or between you and God. You know, and, and think of them. What's confession of sin about? Well, the Hebrew word helps us. You know, think of all those things and think of them being taken and shot like an arrow towards God so that he can take them from us. You know, there's something really helpful, I think, about that image of us taking the sins that we can't get rid of. They trouble us. They weigh us down. They cause us pain. They cause us regret. And we voice them to God. But in confession, it's like we're throwing them onto God and his grace. And what a vivid picture that must have been, again, for the ancient Israelites to see all the people's sins, everybody's, the things you had done to someone else, the things they have done to you, and it's all symbolically thrown, transferred onto this other goat. And then there he goes. There the goat goes off into the wilderness. And I can always like to imagine them just watching it become smaller and smaller into the distance. And eventually the guy who's taking it out lets it go and shoes it off until they, it becomes a tiny bit and eventually they can't even see it at all. Because it's this goat carrying their wrongdoing has just disappeared into oblivion. So what that meant for them was there they all stood together, you know, shoulder to shoulder with the people who had wronged them or they had wronged, but together they watched this happening, and what God was saying was, look, rather than this sin defining and dictating your community's future, God says, I want you to see it being taken away, out of sight, so that when you wake up tomorrow, it's a new start again. Imagine that on that special day. You know, people must have carried all sorts of anger and regrets, hostilities and guilt and shame, but they gathered there to see these pictures from God, a God of atonement, a God of cleansing, of forgiveness, and of a new beginning. Your sins are taken, they're gone, they're carried away and disappeared over the horizon. Now, when it says the high priest placed his hands on the goat, it says he, he puts them on the goat's head so that the goat will carry on itself their iniquities and will carry them away. Now, in Isaiah 53... When the prophet Isaiah spoke about the coming Messiah, Jesus, he used the same words to describe, he said, all of our iniquities, all of our transgressions will be laid on Jesus and that he will carry our sins and sorrows and he'll carry them away. 
And one of the first things we're told about Jesus in the New Testament that he, is that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He took our sins from us and he carried them himself on his head, on his shoulder, if you like. And in so doing, he has carried them away forever. What is sin's ultimate consequence in this world? It is death. Jesus even went there to exhaust even that ultimate consequence of sin when he died for us on the cross. He's taken that from us too. Uh, the Apostle Peter puts it like this in the New Testament. Christ himself carried our sins in his own body on the tree so that we can die to sin, you know, that's finished, and we can instead live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, he says. Forgiveness of sin is often seen as a kind of healing in the Bible. In fact, in Leviticus, just if you read just two chapters earlier, in chapter 14, there's a very similar ceremony to the two goats, but, but in this time, in chapter 14, it's about healing, and instead of two goats, it's two birds. And when a person was healed physically, the priest took two birds, one was sacrificed over clean water, the other bird was stained with its blood, and was then released to fly away in the open fields, it says. Off it goes. Now, the idea of that, you know, was that the, the, the disease is being transferred and then it flies away. And that, that ceremony was about, you know, reassuring a person who'd been healed of a disease or something, reassuring them that yet they're free of it now. It's gone. Just like that bird was released and off it flew. And, and that healed person could watch that bird, look at it go, it's gone. And they, they were healed and their disease had gone. The ceremonies are similar because forgiveness is also a kind of healing in our life and in our relationships and our communities. It can be a healing of our own conscience. It can be a healing between each other in a relationship. And of course, between us and God. And, and again, remember, this was all pointing to Jesus and that the world has now seen the truth that all this was pointing to, not just a picture now, but the actual reality that when God came to us in flesh, Jesus came into the world to live, to die, and to rise again for us. He is our atonement, our covering. He is our cleansing. He has taken your sins away. He is our resurrection. You know, he's our new beginning. Like the Israelites waking up the next day, in their community life. Jesus, for us, is that reset button that means we can wake up tomorrow and go on in a new way. Paul says this in the New Testament, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So if any of this has spoken to you today, come to Jesus and live in the light of his grace. And may God keep us joining together like they used to long ago. Let's us keep joining together to share and celebrate this wonderful good news about Jesus. Amen.